Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. As we all move forward in light of COVID-19, we want to encourage you to make a priority of joining us in person for worship. Because as you know, listening to a podcast can never replace the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we look forward to seeing you soon. In the meantime, here is this week's message. Well, so good morning. I'm glad to be here with you this morning as we continue, actually finish up our series on the spiritual disciplines. As you know, we've begun a new year recently, and so we're looking at these disciplines to hopefully learn how we can draw closer to God so He can transform us. Hopefully, you can pick up some of these habits and incorporate them in your daily life. And remember, though, the thing to remember about the disciplines is that the disciplines in themselves don't transform you. God's the one who transforms you. It's like lifting weights. If you want to get stronger, you lift weights. But lifting weights doesn't actually make you stronger. It doesn't actually make your muscles grow. Lifting weights does what? It tears your muscles. It's your body's natural reaction to the weight. Once your muscles are tore, your body then responds and builds your muscle back up to strengthen them. The weight simply tear it. Your body responds and grows and repairs. And it's kind of like the disciplines. God responds to our faithfulness in the disciplines. When we carry out the disciplines, God then shows up and does his part. And that's what actually transforms us and works in our lives. It's seeking God. So we practice the spiritual disciplines so they can take us to the place where God can transform us. Like we lift weights to break our muscles. That takes us to the place where our body's natural response can do its thing and make us stronger. Now this entire series is um, based on the book that Richard Foster wrote called uh, The Celebrations of Discipline. If you want a good explanation, kind of a good reference, it's a good book to, to pick up. It's To me, not an easy read, but it's a good reference book. Do you all have reference books? Things you don't read all the way through, but things you kind of look at? Yeah, it's it's one of those to me. You may love it, but he breaks it down, uh, the spiritual disciplines, I believe, in a very helpful way. He talks about the inward disciplines that we've went over. He talks about the outward disciplines, the inward lead to the outward. And then he talks about the corporate disciplines. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The corporate disciplines, the ones that we do together as the body of Christ. And here's why. Paul says this in Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 2.9, he says, So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are now members of God's family. Once we become Christian, we become members of God's family. And there's only two ways to become a part of a family, and you know this, either through adoption or being born into a family. And wouldn't you know, the scriptures use both ideas communicating to us what happens when we um, come to know Christ. First Peter 1.3 says this. It says, All praises to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Ephesians 1.5 says, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him pleasure. 
So through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been born again. We've been adopted into God's family. Therefore, the church is God's family. It's God's household. Paul says in 1 Timothy, he says, 1 Timothy 3.15, If I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. Here's what I want to show you. In God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of foundation and truth. So one thing that is absolutely clear in the Bible is that God calls people to himself. And the biblical word for this is fellowship. It's the coming together of God's people living together. Coming together as his people, living together as his people. In other words, going at it alone as a Christian, not being intentional about coming together with other people is a sin. Because we are called to live this life together because we're family. I mean, how else can we love one another if we're not around one another? Right? We have to be together. And as you know, every family has their own conduct. It has their own rules, their own value systems of ways to behave. And that brings us to our corporate disciplines, the things we are supposed to do together as the people of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, the things he's asked us to practice as the community of God's people. And the four disciplines we're going to look at today are worship, confession, guidance, and celebration. And remember, each of these on their own could be their own sermon. In fact, we could probably do a sermon series about each of them. So we're going to look at this from a 50,000-foot view. We're going to go really high and just get an overview of what this is. And I do hope and pray that if one in particular interests you or one you just feel God calling calling you or leading you to, I hope you take the time to investigate it further and deeper. So the first one we're going to talk about today is the discipline of worship. The discipline of worship. Now this is probably the one you're most familiar with because humans were created to worship. Whether or not we choose to devote that worship to God is another matter. But we were created, you and me, to know God. We were created to love God. And worship is then when we seek God, seek to know God, and we seek to love God. Now, we should, the New Testament's very clear, our entire lives should be a form of worship. Our entire lives, everything we do should be for God. But also, he calls us to collectively come together to worship. And what's important to understand about corporate worship is it was his idea. Right? It's the foundation of understanding why we gather for worship. The reason why we do it is not because we always feel like it. You ever not felt like coming to worship? You ever just had everything else to do on a Sunday morning to come to worship? But boy, it's not hard to get up for that baseball game or football game, is it? Right, yeah. Something about it, right? That's the enemy. But this was God's idea to come together for worship. Remember, in ancient Israel, God established a holy day. Remember, it was called the Sabbath. The day they were to rest from everything else, dedicate that entire day to God and worship the Lord. So they were to take one day a week and not set aside for family, not set aside for football, not set aside for whatever else we want to fill in the blanks. That day was holy and dedicated to God. And there's several things that people would do then when they dedicated um, this day to God because God is worthy of these things. 
Because we have a God who reveals himself on that day set apart for him, they would spend the time hearing from God in his word. Because we have a God who is worthy of praise and worship and singing, they would come together to sing praises to him. Because we have a God who listens to our prayer, they would come together to pray and talk with God. Because we have a God who gives, they would come together and give back to him. You see, these are the practices we see ancient Israel doing to worship, to corporately come together. These are the practices we then see Jesus carrying out, which then shouldn't surprise us that when the early church starts gathering together, they continue to do the same exact things. But the big difference was is they no longer did it on Saturday. Right? The Sabbath was Saturday. How many of us already knew that? We get that confused sometimes, right? Remember, the Sabbath was Saturday, but Christians, which was Holy Day, but they said, no, no, the Lord rose on what day? Sunday. So they came together. They still came together to do the same things, but they chose Sunday because that was the Lord's day. So weekly corporate worship, this was his idea, not ours. And it's the day we come together to reorient our lives around him through seeking him in community. And as all of us know, it's one thing to watch a sporting event or a concert on TV. We do that. But there's a whole different experience when you go and you gather with the people, isn't it? When you're there in person. And the same is true in worship. You see, worship must take priority in our lives. It's absolutely foundational. We're going to worship something. So we have to come together corporately and worship him. Hebrews 10.24 says this. It says, and let us consider how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, we can't encourage each other if we're not together. The writer of Hebrews says, do not forsake meeting, meaning continue the habit of coming together weekly. And what's very important to understand about this church in particular, this writer of Hebrews who's talking to, the church was being persecuted for being Christians. I know you might die for meeting together, but don't stop meeting together. That's powerful, isn't it? I know you may be persecuted. I know you may be called out. I know they may break up your gatherings. I know you're, but don't stop meeting together. Worship was a priority, even in the face of persecution. And as we know, many have gotten in the habit of not meeting together. We look for reasons why we shouldn't go rather than look for reasons why we should go. You ever done that in life? You ever had that problem in marriage where you looked for reasons to argue rather than reasons not to argue? Or you start nitpicking things, you start getting on things, we start looking at the negative rather than the positive? Right, right now, we people have gotten out of the habit of meeting together. And listen, I understand COVID. I, I do. I, I, I get that. I'm not talking about that. But in general, people have gotten out of the habit of worshiping. Rather than making it a priority, they've chosen to use that time for other things. I've had people just tell me, I, I just like wearing my pajamas and watching on TV. They've gotten out of the habit of coming together. But what's important to understand, this was his idea. 
This was God's idea. This is something he said we needed. And so when we gather for worship, one of the things we're going to talk about is because this was God's idea, this is for him. When we come together to worship, one of the things we have to be intentional about, and it's hard, one of the things we should be intentional about is hearing from him. And this builds off the other disciplines because if we're spending time daily with the Lord, if we're spending time hearing from his word, if we're spending time praying, communicating with God, in our devotion and study time, then when we gather, we're also coming together to hear from the Lord, to encounter the Lord. But too often when we gather for worship, we're really thinking about who? Us. You ever notice that? We think about ourselves. But what if we came expecting to hear from God? What if we realize that every single Sunday God is speaking, we're just missing it because we're worshiping ourselves? C.S. Lewis says this. He says, the perfect church service would be the one we're almost unaware of. Our attention would have been on God. But every novelty prevents this, doesn't it? The sneeze, the cough, I mean, everything else distracts us, doesn't it? But every novelty prevents this. It fixes our attention on the service itself. And thinking about worship, here it is, and thinking about worship is a different thing than worshiping. Isn't that true? Thinking about worship is different than actual worship. Tis mad idolatry that makes the service greater than God. And that blew me away because, listen, what he's saying is, When we're choosing to think about the service or the elements of the service, when we're choosing to dwell on that, we're placing those elements above God. We're here to encounter him. When we put those other things above him, we're focused on that. So now that becomes more important than God himself. He calls it idolatry. Now, the great thing about Lewis is completely transparent. He's admitted where he's messed up on this. You see, when he first became a Christian, the thing that bothered him the most was the music. Y'all ever heard of music being an issue in worship services? Y'all ever heard of that before? Yeah, it's one of those things people talk about. He had the same issue. Listen to his quote. It makes me laugh. I hope it maybe makes you laugh. He says this. Next quote. He says, I disliked, this is when he first started going to church, he says, I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered fifth-rate poetry set to sixth-rate music. Now, if you don't know who C.S. Lewis is, he's a brilliant man, one of just, just ridiculous IQ, brilliant. And all the music that people love so much, he thought was fifth-rate poetry set to sixth-rate music. Whew, that steps on toes, doesn't it? He said, but as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education. And then gradually, my conceit began to peel off. I realized that the hymns, which were just six-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefited by an old saint in a classic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. You see, he thought the hymns were terrible. 
He just thought they, they weren't any good. He was fussing about the music. But then he looked over and watched somebody with a lower education, a working class man. Remember, he, he, was, he was a professor. He saw this person, those were drawing him to the presence of God. And while he's fussing about music, that man is worshiping. And he realized he's missed it. He was focused on the wrong things. And if that music brings other people to encounter God, then praise God for that music. If that music helps other people know God, then praise God for that music. You see, that man was experiencing God while he was not. So when we worship, because this was his idea, our focus must be on God. And corporate worship has always been a priority for the church and must be a priority for the church because the whole idea was his. So next up, first we have worship. we got to corporately gather for worship. Next up we have confession. James 5.16 says this. He says, Therefore, confessing your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now let's be honest about confessing to our sins to one another. That's not fun, is it? You're like, I don't know, I've never tried it. Try it sometime. It's not fun at all. It's very hard. But it's not supposed to be fun. And of course, individually, you and I, this is how this works. You and I are supposed to individually repent and confess our sins before God. That's why and when he teaches us to pray, he says, forgive us our sins. That would be the time to prompt us to confess before him. But there's also a power in confessing our sin to each other. And there's two ways we can do this. First, we can confess our sins to someone we have wronged. You ever done that? You ever just had to go back to say sorry to someone? Just apologize here how I was messed up? And what I've learned about the Christian life is the closer you get to God, the more people he'll bring up that you got to go back and deal with. You ever had to talk to somebody? God brought someone up on your mind you ain't talked to in five to ten years, and you said, you know what, i got to go say I'm sorry. Just, you know, he does that. We have to walk through this life. He'll bring up sins, and we have to go talk to people and make amends with people. There's a power in that. So we confess things we've done wrong, ask for forgiveness. But secondly, we confess our sins for prayer. You see, prayer is a powerful thing. And this is what James is telling us to do, to not go to somebody and confess to have absolution from our sins. God does that. But we confess so they can pray. And when you confess to each other, you're asking for accountability. You see, if our friends know the things we struggle with, it's far easier for them to hold us accountable and check up on us with our sins. They can guide us and, most importantly, pray for us. I've told you this has done wonders in my life. When I was a young adult, I was struggling in sin, and I tried on my own to deal with this. I've told you this before, and I just broke down. I said, I couldn't do it. Lord, Lord I need help. And I went to my pastor. I just showed up at the church one evening, sat on the steps, just... Saying, God, here I am, and wouldn't you know, the pastor drove by. It's one of those God moments. He pulled in to the parking lot, and I just unloaded on him. Just unloaded, absolutely, and he just listened. He listened and prayed. And I can't explain to you why, but there was such a power in that confession. Bonhoeffer says this, and I think this is what he's getting at. He says, a man who confesses his sins in the presence of a brother knows that he is no longer alone with himself. He experiences the presence of God and the reality of the other person. And as long as I am by myself in the confession of my sin, everything remains in the dark. 
But in the presence of a brother, the sin has been brought into the light. So sometimes we're dealing with things. We're dealing with it our own, and we're trying to handle it on our own, and we can't. And so we take it to our brother or sister in Christ. We expose it. We bring it out. We stop letting it hide in the shadows. And God works through that. But also when we confess our sin, it brings a sense of belonging and acceptance with others. When we share our true selves, rather than being the best form of ourselves, when we're honest and vulnerable, that's when relationships deepen. Because the truth is, we're all messed up, aren't we? Look, you're not fooling me. I'm just letting you know. We're all messed up. We all have issues. And if we want deep, authentic relationships, sharing our struggles, sharing our sins, is a way to build trust and sense of belonging with others. But the other side of that is if we're going to confess our sins to each other, that means we're going to have to be ready to hear other people's sins. We're going to have to shoulder that. We're going to have to really take that stuff to prayer. Which, of course, is why gossip is prohibited in the church. Would you share your sins and your struggles with somebody you knew that gossiped? Absolutely not. We can't be there for each other if we're always talking about each other. Paul says in Galatians 6 too. he says, carry each other's burdens, and this way you fulfill the law of Christ. So if we are to carry each other's burdens, that means we have to realize that we're sinners too, that we have failed, that we have to look deep within ourselves and remember that we're saved by grace. We've had struggles. In fact, there's probably many things we've overcome that we've forgotten about. Y'all ever done that before? You've forgotten that you used to deal with something, you used to struggle with something? That's a great thing if you're moving towards maturity. But first, we must we always remember to look at ourselves in light of the cross, in light of the fact that Jesus died for us, Jesus bled for us, we are sinners in need of his grace. And when we remember that, we can then build trust and authentic community by truly going to our friends and saying, pray for me, here's what I got going on. You see, the reason why I share my struggles and my weaknesses with you is not because I enjoy it. I don't enjoy sharing that stuff with you. I don't enjoy um, putting that on the internet for everybody in the world to see. I do it to lead the way. And if you can see the pastor sharing his heart, sharing his struggles, the things he's dealt with, the goal is then for you to model that. That didn't do the same thing and build authentic relationships in the same manner. So we worship together. We confess together. And next up is the discipline of guidance. The discipline of guidance. The discipline of guidance is simply understanding that all of us can get it wrong sometimes. You ever been wrong before? Yeah, discipline of guidance is saying, hey, I can be wrong. Therefore, we need each other. We need direction from each other. We need guidance from each other. We need leadership from each other. And guidance in the church can take so many different forms. First, as a church body, we should always practice collaborative leadership. And collaborative leadership simply means when we're thinking through ideas, we're bringing together different people to talk through it, to think through it, and we're seeking God in the middle of it. That's why all of our stuff here at our church is formed with leadership teams. There's not one person who's in charge of, of anything. As our pastoral staff, we, we come together on every decision. I can't think of one thing that we've decided that wasn't 100% unanimous. 
You say, well, Brian, that's just because if you bring up an idea, you're the boss, they agree. No. Scott never agrees with me, ever. I have no idea why, and it drives me absolutely crazy. He always disagrees. doesn't matter. But you want people like that around you. That's the whole point. People who will speak into it so you can truly come up with a good decision. You see, throughout the New Testament, we see the church gathering or the church leaders gathering together to talk to each other, to come up with the best ideas. Look what we see when the people are worshiping together, seeking God. Acts 13, 2, we see this. We see while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, that's the church, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. You see, the entire church heard from the Lord this calling on these men. It's one thing for you to have an idea of what you're supposed to do. It's a whole other thing if the church agrees that you're supposed to do that. Later in Acts, we see a church council being formed because there was a ton of problems going on. People were saying that in order for Gentiles to become Christians, they had to be Jews first. They had to do the things that Jews did. And then Paul, Peter, um, James, the brother of Jesus, a bunch of other people got together to debate these issues. You can read all about it in Acts 15. But here's part of the letter I want to show you to get to my point that they sent to these churches. It's in Acts 15. In the letter it says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to, what's that word? Us. They came about agreement together. They debated. They talked about it. They collectively came together to work out these decisions. They sought God in the community. Now, there's no need to debate things the Bible's already clear about. We just let God reveal himself and we move on. But one thing I'm absolutely confident of, and I hope you understand this, but the plurality of leaders in the New Testament. When the New Testament talks about leadership, it always talks about it in plural, meaning there's multiple people seeking the Lord, making decisions. And the reason why this is a discipline and the reason why we have to be intentional about this is because all of us are guilty and can be guilty of doing things on our own. It's easy to come up with decisions on your own, isn't it? I don't have to ask anybody and I agree with myself. You know how easy that is. Every time I work with myself, I agree with myself. It's pretty great. But when we bring those to other people, and we let them sift through it and their best ideas. We sharpen each other and we let the best possible outcome come out. That's what collaborative leadership is all about. But if we're going to operate that way, that means there can be no backdoor dealings, people working out things behind the scenes. There can't be a couple of people figuring something out and then pushing it forward in a group. It means that you have to be, you and me, we have to be brave enough to have a group setting and be brave enough to share our ideas and then brave enough for other people to critique our ideas. It takes maturity for someone to tell us that was just a horrible idea, doesn't it? And to own that they're not attacking us, but just our idea is horrible. Y'all ever had a bad idea? I get them all the time. So does Scott. Scott mainly gets them. I usually try to correct them. So we have this idea of the church coming together for guidance. But also we see individuals. Us as people should come together to other church people and ask for guidance in our lives. Ask for insights and opinions. And the reason this is important because it combats individualism. We're not alone. We have a family of God's people. And it takes humility then to come with other people in God's house and say, here's what's going on in my life. You got any advice? You got any suggestions? Because I can't tell you 
the different types of people we have in this church. The different forms of leaders, the different experiences, a lot of kids, no kids, really high jobs, blue-collar jobs. I mean, we got a billion different things going on. And what's in the church, you're around people you never get to socialize with or meet outside of here. You come here and you can just ask people or find people who may be able to help you and guide you in this life. Maybe it's a brother or sister in Christ. Maybe it's a Sunday school teacher, small group leader. Maybe a deacon or pastoral staff. I mean, there's so many people within the church you can come to and talk to. You don't have to parent alone. You don't have to marriage alone. You don't have to finance alone. You don't have to make those job decisions alone. You don't have to be out there by yourself. you got a church family who would love to help you. Look what it says in Proverbs, Proverbs 12, 15. There's a whole bunch I want to look at. It says, Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Well, if you're going to get advice, what does that mean you have to ask for? All right, so y'all are like, no, I don't want to do this. Okay, listen, if you're going to get advice, it means you have to ask for it. You got to let someone know what's going on. Proverbs 15, 22 says, Plans fail for the lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Proverbs 19.20, listen to the advice and accept discipline, and at the end you will be counted among the wise. The way you become wise is asking other people, asking their advice, saying, hey, what do you think? It's a great way to live. So if we're going to be given advice, that means we need to seek it from other people. So as the church, we worship together, we confess to each other. We ask for guidance individually and corporately. And then lastly, we're going to talk about this discipline of celebration. Now, I have to admit this is the one I argued with him and I thought was wrong the whole time in the book. Because I'm horrible at celebrating. Anybody else really bad at celebrating? Just me. Okay, I'm by myself. I got it. Well, let me explain to you. So I didn't understand that celebration was a big deal. Think about birthdays, okay? Here's my mind. Why do we celebrate birthdays? What did the person actually do to celebrate? Live? Seven billion people do that all the time. They don't even try. It just happens. Is that a negative way to look at life? I'm just telling you, I, I, don't, I don't understand celebrations. I don't like parties. I, that's not a natural thing for me. You say, Brian, I just feel real bad for your kids. You're right. They don't get parties. They don't like, I, I, don't, I don't do birthday parties. This is a true story. However, I realized I gotta get better at this. As I started looking through the Bible, I realized, and I even though I argued with this guy quite a bit, that as Christians, we really should be the most joyous, joyful people in the world. We should be celebrating and enjoying God's gift of life. I mean, we're commanded not to worry, we're commanded not to chase after other things. And we're commanded to be joyful in the Lord. And as I looked at the biblical evidence for celebrating, I realized that, man, I've fallen really, really short of this. Did you know that God, in fact, put celebrations as a mandate for his people in the Old Testament? There were three in particular, three festivals that he told them that they had to corporately gather together to do once a year. Now, there were several, but three in particular were celebration-oriented. Look at this. Exodus 23, 14 says this. It says, three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. The first one is the festival of the unleavened bread. Look what it says, 23, 15. Next verse. It says, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. 
In the springtime, they were to remember God rescuing them from Egypt. This happened, this started at Passover and was a seven-day celebration of them remembering as a nation now, collectively come together and have a celebration because God rescued them from Egypt. And then 2316, they were to celebrate the festival of harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in the field. This is also called the, fest, the Feast of Weeks. Look, look what God says about it in Deuteronomy 16.10. He explains to them. He says, Then celebrate the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God by giving a free will offering in proportion to the blessings the Lord your God has given you. Look at this. And rejoice before the Lord your God at the place he would choose as a dwelling for his name. You and your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites in your towns, the foreigners, the fatherless, the widows, the living among you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and followed carefully these decrees. So at the, this was, hold on, which one is this? Yeah, this is the one that they were to rejoice before the Lord to celebrate and remember because of the grain harvest and to remember the entrance into the promised land. This was seven weeks after Passover. They were to come together as a nation and celebrate and rejoice and have a party. Did you know that? How come we don't throw parties? Yeah, I know. Exodus 23, 16. We're not done yet because he has another one. Celebrate the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather your crops from the field. This is also called the Feast of Tabernacles. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy 16, explaining it out. He says, celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days. Folks, these are week-long parties God is saying to throw. Week-long. Come together three times a year for week-long celebrations. After you've gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press, be joyful at your festival. You, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, the widows who live in your towns, for seven days celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For your Lord will bless you in all your harvest and all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. So at the end of the year, after all of their hard work, they were to come together as a nation and be joyful and have a party. God instructs them to celebrate everything I've given you. Have fun, enjoy it, laugh, hang out with people, and have a good time. Don't work, but party. Y'all ever got the advice from a pastor before? It's like the weirdest, right? He says, don't have, and see, right? Maybe you're not good at celebrating either. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Yeah, God says, no, you need to celebrate. And then throughout the New Testament, we see Jesus going to wedding banquets, which are parties. We see him going to people's house. We see him talking about festivals. We see him talking about feasts. He's using these as illustrations. Now, truth be told, when Jesus showed up at a party, he'd usually ruin it. Right, he'd start calling people out and start preaching the gospel. But nevertheless, he went to these national celebrations. And so think about this. As Christians, it's okay to celebrate. In fact, we have biblical evidence that God commanded his people to come together and celebrate him. And think about it. If the nation of Israel were to come together for weeks at a time and party because he delivered them out of slavery, because he provided for them, because he gave them the promised land, what kind of celebration and party should we be throwing in light of God coming to us, dying on the cross for our sins, raising from the dead and giving us eternal life? How much greater should our celebrations be telling people who God is? 
How awesome would it be for a week after Easter if we had a festival at the church? We just had a barbecue all week long. Everybody, nobody worked. We just came and, not possible? Well, think about it. Now, what's important to understand is that the celebration of parties are not an excuse to sin. Right? They are to celebrate God. God was at the center of their life. God was at the center of their political life, their business dealings, their parenting, their education. I mean, putting your faith and trust in God means putting your faith and trust in him in everything, not just, not just part of your life. So our celebrations and our gatherings should be God-centered, celebrating him. God created celebration. God created laughter. God created us coming together to celebrate. And Paul knows that we shouldn't come together to do the other things. Paul reminds us, and just because I don't want you to leave here saying, well, the pastor told me to party, Mom. That's why I'm out till 3 o'clock in the morning. Let me be very clear of what he's not saying. Look at what Romans tells us. Romans 13. Paul says, because we belong to the day, we must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or sexual promiscuity or immoral living. Yeah, Paul knew about them parties you used to go to in high school. He talks about them right here. It's been in the Bible. He says, or quarreling and jealousy. And said, close yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. So Paul's rather clear. We can celebrate and we should party, but we don't party and go hang out in those sinful ways. We are celebrating and being joyful in who our God is. So we enjoy life together. And we do this God-centered ways. And we celebrate because of who God is. This is a discipline because some of us, at least me, we can just work. And then when you're done working, what do you look for next? More work. At the end of the year, do you celebrate? Nope, you do what? Work. We must take time to celebrate and enjoy. So I ask, which of these disciplines do you need to commit your life to? Which, which is one that's newer to you? Which is one that you need to redo? Is it worship? Maybe you've gotten out of the habit. Maybe you need to be intentional with that. Or maybe you come with the wrong heart, as we talked about. How about confession? Are you struggling with sin? Is there something going on in your life and you just need to find somebody you can trust and unload on them? Share with them? Ask them to pray? How about guidance? Do you seek spiritual leadership in your life? Do you know you don't have to make all these decisions alone? You're not by yourself. You've got a community of people who would love to help you. Or do you need to celebrate? That's my thing. I'm going to start partying. 2022, I'm going to party more. What do you think? Anybody else? We're like, I, I, I guess. Y'all don't know what a joyful celebration of the Lord looks like, do you? Y'all been partying the wrong way. I see your faces out there. Gotta, They've got to think about how we celebrate maybe a little bit differently. But I hope through this series you're able to learn more about the disciplines. And my prayer is that each of us are intentional about adding these disciplines to our lives so we can allow God to work in us. We can allow God to transform our lives. And here's the thing about these disciplines. They will help you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Absolute guarantee. They've been tried and practiced for thousands of years. We don't need something new. These are the things people have been doing for thousands of years to draw closer to God. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning so thankful that you hear our prayers. We thank you that you are our living hope. 
We're so thankful that you are a creator who's made everything and sustains it all. So, Lord, we want to celebrate you. We want to celebrate you being our God. We want to know you and we seek after you. And, Lord, we want to love you, which is our worship. So, Father, help us choose the disciplines in our lives that we need to incorporate so we can draw closer to you. Father, help us stay consistent. Help us draw closer to our brothers and sisters of Christ. Help us find true community, find true friendships, rather than being lonely and living alone. Father, let us be intentional about building those relationships, those corporate disciplines. Lord, will help us in that. So, Father, we love you and we trust you and we thank you so much for Jesus. Lord, let us be more intentional as a church about celebrating you. We thank you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.